The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Okay, so, um, I'm trying out, I'm trying out new equipment. This is the equipment that I'm going to be using for the live podcast at the APP conference next month. So if you're listening to this, uh, sorry, but I'm going to be having to figure some stuff out like while we're recording. Um, but you know, the price is right. So, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name's Lola Slider. I'm what? Gonna, what? <laughs> You're just like, what is Hi, I'm Lola Slider. Um, yes. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes. Hello. Um, <clears throat> my name is Lola Slider and I'm a professional body piercer. I work at Forest Piercing in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, and I am, uh, I've been promoted recently to a co-host of the piercing wizard podcast so now it's going to be the piercing wizards podcast um but you know um, it's not actually going to change it's still going to be the piercing wizard podcast the s is silent it the s be silent and invisible yeah uh and also you you got to see the the team piercing wizard sticker yeah what do you think of that uh i really liked it i like that um my my belly tattoo is a snorlax and not a moon bear that was my note yeah um it was very well done thank you well um thank you to uh dave cole is the artist that i hired for that same artist that did the the synth wave piercing wizard t-shirt he's a, a pro wrestler and professional artist so uh, since i don't have tattooers in my studio anymore uh and i can't draw to save my save my life i thought i would hire a, a professional to to do the art stuff that i need so that's always nice and just a quick reminder out there if you have friends that are professional artists don't try to get them to do their work for free give them money just like you would probably want to get money if you were piercing them uh so i have a new video available at patreon.com slash ryan pba all about surface anchors microdermals we'll talk about the differences with the names and all that stuff but it's available now on my patreon on the archmage tier uh for 15 bucks and that was one of the things that i had gotten requested multiple times and i was trying to like tactically avoid it you know because uh, every now and then i would put out these these content polls where i'd be like hey what do you want me to work on next and i would give people these couple of options and um I really wasn't putting like surface anchors as an option, but people would always put in the comments, hey, what about a surface anchor video? Hey, what about a surface anchor video? And I was like, well, okay. I mean, I have a couple of things recorded and I can make it, but I don't really do surface anchors much anymore. I'll, I'll do some, obviously, you know, I have the recorded examples of it, but if I compare it to five years ago and then five years before that, uh, microdermals are becoming kind of an endangered species in the, the piercing world. And I think for, for good reason. So um, we were having a chat over some French toast and coffee this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, even though I made you French toast yesterday. But but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, we kind of just started having our unrecorded podcast. So I was like, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just 
try out all this equipment, which is substantial, and um, chat about surface anchors. And as a bonus, maybe some people would want to sign up to my Patreon to see the video on there. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on surface anchors? I know we have a little like list that we'll start going through. Well, when when you mentioned to me that you were going to be doing a video about the, the surface anchors, um, sometimes when Ryan's going to work on a video, he'll he'll say like, is there anything particular that you think that I should include that I haven't covered, you know, just to get a second set of eyes on it. And with the surface anchor, I was just like, I would like to be politely excused from taking part in this. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately I did, I did, suggest one or two little things to be included but i don't offer um dermal anchors or surface anchors at all anymore haven't done them in years probably won't do them again unless it's on you know a friend or something like that um and i just have never have never looked back it's one of the there have been a few things that i phased out over the years that i felt like man i wish i could still do that you know like i wish that was a viable thing for me to offer and if there was a way it was workable uh, dermal anchors. I'm I'm very happy with my choices, so um, I'm very much on that side of things. And I think that one of the reasons you maybe keep getting that note for uh, surface anchor information is maybe that there are probably more piercers who have maybe been working for a little bit longer who have phased them out or no longer offer them, and maybe just the information and training um, isn't as available as as it was maybe a few years ago for them. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um, well, can you hear that siren in the background? Yeah, but I can only hear it in my head. Yeah. It's a good microphone. Set in the scene. We're here in Glasgow City Centre. Yeah. Uh, going to happen. Haven't been stabbed yet. No. Uh, so, the thing about surface anchors and, and, like, modern information is, just like you said, like, you've dropped it from your menu. Um, I, I know lots of other studios. Lots of other studios who have also dropped it. So, that means that... The piercers who work in those studios, the apprentices who come up through those studios don't have really educational opportunities. And a lot of times it's very difficult to take something out of an archive. Like once you've discontinued something, it's very unlikely that you're going to reintroduce it unless there's like a significant mm-hmm. financial factor or driving force or something like that. Yeah. So um, just like I think genital piercing went through that stage a couple of years ago, not to say that people were phasing it out, but I think that there was a generation of piercers that didn't have a lot of genital experience training the next generation that had even less experience. I I think genital piercing has kind of not, not necessarily a renaissance, but I think a lot more people are doing it and trying to focus on it and trying to focus on education related to it. Surface anchors. I don't feel like it's there because a lot of people don't prioritize it. Myself included. There was a point where I had lots of different tops available lots of different um, bases for lots of different anatomical placements and mm. all these different things. I used to do them a lot. It wasn't really to the level of like triple forward helix. That's what I'm always going to compare every like kind of up and down piercing fad to is like, is it as popular as the triple forward helix? Because there was a point where I was doing a dozen or more in a day. Yeah. Surface anchors at their peak, I would do a handful a day. Uh, but now it's like, maybe I'll do a handful in a year. Uh, so I, I think it's important to share the information and the the access and the experience I've had. You were kind of um, not necessarily trying to make me feel bad, but just reminding <laughs> me that I am, a, I am a seasoned professional. And that means I've seen a lot of things that have came and went. Um, so I would like to share some of the reasons why they went. Mm. Um, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with like their inception or do you want to just jump right into why you don't like them? 
Well, why don't we begin at the beginning and you can talk a little bit about, because we spoke about this a little bit earlier. My point of view was then being introduced in the UK, which will have been a little bit of time after mm -hmm. they would have been introduced in the US, presumably. So why don't you talk a little bit about the, the initial inception as you remember it? Well, as I remember it, it's a little bit murky to, to nail down the year. I'll say that probably, I mean, I know it was during the BME years because i remember before there were surface anchors in the way that we might think of them today uh there was there was like pocketing and stapling and there were these things that people were trying and a lot of it you had to like fashion your own jewelry i remember i used to order like two or three inch long um steel bars like basically barbell shafts but without a thread tapped into it the ends were just rounded off and polished i would order them from industrial strength and then i would bend them into surface staples because like nobody made the jewelry because it was a stupid idea and then uh, after a while industrial strength was like why are you ordering these really weird things that we can't figure out any use for and i was like oh this is what i'm making out of them and they're like oh okay well we don't we, didn't, we don't really want to be associated with that so we don't really want to sell them anymore and i was like fair enough i don't want to be doing them anymore but with surface anchors, microdermals, before there was jewelry, people had the idea of like, well, what if it was like a little single point piercing? I think that's what they were really referred to originally was single point piercings. Yeah. And my first recollection of it was uh, something basically like a nostril screw. You would start out with a, a, an unbent straight nostril screw. You would basically twist it into more of like a coil. So there'd be a, a small shaft that would come like up and through the skin and you'd have your your you know, permanently fixed gem on it because this is just a nostril screw, 18 gauge, 16 gauge. And then they would make like a coil and instead of like a little curved tail, they would pierce in and then they would kind of just shove the jewelry in there and force a pocket to open up with the jewelry, kind of like you were separating the skin with the, you know, that blunt end of the jewelry. Um, people got them to heal, air quotes heal for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, but none of them lasted long-term. Then you had like the jewelry innovators uh, starting to think like, well, what can we do here? And um, I, I want to kind of go off on a little tangent first. And I, like multiple people had these ideas for innovation around the same time. So I don't want to completely credit it to one person. But in, in my personal recollection, and this is just my personal recollection, the person that I would credit the most with the modern surface anchor base design would be Pat Pruitt, who had a company called uh, Custom Steel. In, around this time, you know, the early 2000s. And Custom Steel has has since shuttered. Uh, Pat's moved on to other things. He makes like fine jewelry, traditional jewelry out of titanium and niobium. And it's he makes really cool stuff. I've been following his work for years on Facebook. But um, he was the first person that I can really recollect as showing a surface anchor base online. Within like a short amount of time, lots of other companies were developing their own bases. Some were very similar. Some were very different. Uh, but uh, Pat Pruitt was the person that I would like to credit in, in my own memory anyway. I'm sure other people will have a difference of opinion. But those surface bases uh, started to come out. And then um, after that, once they kind of like got out there into the world, then people had to start to say like, well, shit, we don't have the techniques to install them. And then there was this multi-year period of experimentation where people were trying to figure out the best techniques and how to get them to heal and what's, what body locations were viable and what weren't. So it was a really fun time to be a body piercer. Uh, that was really kind of towards the end of the let's figure out something completely new. Now I think people have just been like refining and refining and refining the existing ideas. But I do miss those days where it was like completely brand new innovations, never seen it before and let's figure it out. I feel like a lot of that is kind of gone from the industry, maybe for better or worse, who knows.
anything you want to add to that? Um, well, the first time that I can ever recall um, seeing dermal anchors offered and, uh, and hearing about them was definitely 2007, um, maybe 2006, but certainly 2007. I remember um, it was uh, an 18 plus piercing service. Um, most piercing services were 16 plus. So I remember there was an age difference. Uh, it wasn't available everywhere. Only a few piercers were, were offering it. And um, even in those situations, it was clear that it was a very experimental thing. Um, there was uh, an element of, we're kind of figuring this out. I remember having a pair done on my chest. Um, that would have been in 2007. And uh, they were just done with a cannula, as most piercings would have been done uh, in the UK at that time. So they were done with a cannula. And um, yeah, the... We, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I feel like one of the biggest uh, mistakes in branding from the get-go was the branding of permanent piercings mm -hmm. and the phrase permanent piercing. Like if I could just erase that, I think I would feel a lot differently about dermal anchors now. But at the time it was, oh, this is permanent. You know, these are permanent implants. They're implants and they're permanent. And that was, uh, everybody rushed out to get them. They were so wildly popular for years and years. Um, so my, my experience of them was, was, uh, not from the same perspective as you, because you were a professional piercer at that time. And, and I wasn't, I was just a teenager, just piercer, a wee lass. piercing enthusiast, getting the, getting, you know, there's this new thing and I have to go and try it. And I, I did have the, the ones that were on my chest for a few years. And, uh, one of them I had for six or seven years. The other one I had for maybe two. Um, so uh, I, I think that they were pretty successfully installed, but it was a very, very new experience at the time. Well, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about terminology because when you, when you say dermal anchor, yep. I say oh, surface anchor. Here they were called dermal anchors. Yeah. I don't know why that difference happened, but one of the first times I can remember being, uh, maybe not the first, uh, kind of like, I don't want to say talked down to, but corrected by, by piercers from, uh, North America was oh you mean surface anchors mm -hmm. i was like all right cool nice one well so so here's here's <laughs> i want to talk about terminology then for a little bit so when i when i first became aware of them after the whole single point piercing experimentation phase when there was actually professional jewelry um they were they were introduced pop up 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 hi hi it just made like a weird cutout for a second anyway yeah. So when they were first introduced to, to me as a piercer in North America, they were introduced as microdermals. And the reason why is because it was a very tiny version of a transdermal implant. Yeah. So trans meaning to pass through, dermal just means skin. So transdermal implant versus a subdermal implant. If, you, if you're kind of familiar with that world, transdermals would be like what they would do metal mohawks with. You know, you'd have a, meta, a metal piece visible on the surface but there was a base under the surface, but it was much larger than what we think of as, as microdermals. They were transdermal implants. So again, that kind of like Venn diagram between the professional piercing industry and like the BME BOD mod world, um, the, the terminology came along with it where it's like, okay, this is like a small transdermal implant. We'll call them microdermals. Um, so sometimes like I'm not really going to be like, oh, do you mean this? But sometimes it, it was a little bit of a, a point of frustration when people would just call them dermals because you're just saying skin, you know? Yeah. I remember when I was on 
the the app tumblr team which was like the the proto version of like you know the social media outreach that they have today for the app um i wrote like a little article on there kind of explaining you know why when you just call them dermals you're not really you know you're not really doing it a lot of justice so surface anchors microdermals dermal anchors i'm fine with all that terminology because it all kind of means the same thing but i just want people to understand what some of those words mean so when you say dermal anchor you know skin anchor that's fine uh i would say that my first exposure to them was probably more like 2005 2006 it is a little bit murky for so me though 18 months before the uk which sounds pretty probably yeah. fairly accurate in the trickle down of information thereabouts i mean i might be i might be wrong with that it might have been a different point but um a, a big thing for me was that it, it hadn't really left my little inner circle yet it wasn't something that i was doing on clients it was like friends and people i knew from bme other piercers stuff like that and then i remember i went to my first bmxnet conference in germany in 2008 and i was there to teach scarification at that point i wasn't doing any piercing instruction at, at that point in my career and one of the classes that was in the same workshop space as my scarification class i think it was the class just before it was about something called skin divers and that was like a big eye-opener for me because I didn't really have a lot of experience with surface anchors and skin divers were on on that family tree, but they were very, very different. So skin divers, I think maybe is where some of that permanent piercing terminology also came from, mm -hmm. unfortunately. If you can imagine what a surface anchor base looks like in your mind, if you already know what that looks like. Try to imagine you have the, the shaft of the jewelry, the part that comes up through the skin, and then you have whatever attachment on the surface, whether it's a, a gem or a disc or whatever it is. Now, the underside, instead of having that base that has maybe a long toe side and a short heel side, think of it as like a, a very um, shallow cone, basically. Not really like a spike. It wasn't very long or very pointy, but it was like a shallow cone. So there were some that were had the cone base mm -hmm. with the point facing inward towards the body and then there were also skin wheels which was just like a little wheel like a circle with little spokes coming off of it connecting to a center point mm -hmm. um, and then the the top on that um i think they were <laughs> probably even worse um but there are skin divers and uh, skin wheels and i think it was the wheels um that had some of the most problems i didn't i've never used them or installed them but the majority that i came into contact with had a smaller thread pattern than a microdermal surface anchor would have. And so people would have them done on holiday and then they would come back and say, oh, I need you know help getting a new top for this or changing the top for this. And then you would take it off and nothing that you would have would fit. Mm -hmm. um, because it was it, usually like 14 gauge versus 16 gauge or something, right. or it could be some proprietary random thread pattern. Right, and at that point, so it was like a 0.8 mil which was even thinner than a 16 gauge, which I think is 0.9 mil. So the thread pattern didn't work with anything. E even if you had internally threaded jewelry, which nobody had at that time, in, at least in, in the UK, I'm not aware of anybody that was working with that as standard at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, even just like a, a 16 gauge bead wouldn't have, wouldn't have fitted on a skin, skin wheel. The thread would have been too big. So they were just, 
it would just be a nightmare. You would be in those situations with people where they'd be like, what am I supposed to do? And you'd be like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I can't even remove that. I don't even know how to remove this. Yeah. I don't even know what's in there. But that was also a, a, a time in the industry where you could just give that simple of an answer. Be like, I don't know. I can't do anything for you. And oh, then it's like, yeah. that's it. And you don't have any responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, so when I was at BMXNet, people were going nuts with them because like, I think one of the, the better innovations related to skin divers, it was how easy they were to install you would basically just take a, a small, like a one mil biopsy punch, punch a hole, and then you would just push straight down. Mm. That's what the cone was there for, to just drive it down and into the skin. And then the flat side of the cone, it would just kind of pop into place and it would, that's it. You know, like it was a really small piece of jewelry. Um, they could they could go in almost anywhere. I remember seeing people walking around the whole rest of the weekend at BMX and that just covered in like little dot band-aids because mm -hmm. they got like... 10 skin divers down the sides of their throat and like the side of their forehead and the yeah. sides of their hand and fingers and people were putting them everywhere. And I don't have anything against experimentation, especially against experimentation within a, a community of professionals and like heavy enthusiasts. Like they knew what they were getting into. That's fine. But then I think uh, I started to see the most problems with surface anchors coming in like the next few years after that. People were doing skin divers, surface anchors, whatever variations on it they were doing, they were doing them and, and they were kind of misrepresenting the viability of them. Mm -hmm. They were saying things like, well, they can go anywhere. They can go places you would never be able to do a piercing. We could do one on the, you know, on your toe or stick it in the middle of a tattoo anywhere on your body or, or do this or do that. And it was such a new thing that people didn't really see the consequences of it yet. People didn't really understand the long-term viability. And people were using words like, you know, permanent piercing because they, they didn't really understand the limitations yet. Some of those uh, base designs for surface anchors would have little holes in them, you know, different shapes as far as the length of the toe versus the foot and have a hole and don't have a hole and whatever. And people would think that the skin would always be able to heal through that hole and bind it in there, and then it was there forever. You'd never get rid of it unless you carved it out with a scalpel or something, but it's not really accurate because we're talking about such a small scale where, sure, there could be some tissue through that hole, but it is such a small amount of tissue, and especially if you put it on an area that's going to have a lot of like rubbing, catching, snagging, um, you'd be lucky if you got a couple of months out of them sometimes. If you were careful about where you were placing them, you were placing them well, you were giving people good aftercare, you could get them to heal for years at a time. I did some that were there for five, ten years, whatever, but more often than not, they were there for a few months, and then you'd have to, to take them out. So that whole terminology thing about permanent, and now I think a lot of people would, would use the phrasing semi-permanent, mm. is, is a much more realistic way to, to name them. Yeah, um, and then there's the... the other side as well where you have one group of people who are putting them absolutely anywhere that they'll go and then you have maybe another subsection of piercers who will say things like oh well they should be permanent and if they're not permanent it's because they've not been put in correctly mm -hmm. and that's that, it's that just, old chestnut of like well if i didn't do it it's obvious that the piercer who did is an idiot yeah i mean that it just it's scream into a pillar pillow yeah. moment for me that um so i much like yourself, I offered them for years and years, and uh, I started to phase them out. Before I opened Forest at the previous studio I was at, um, I did get to a point where I just phased them out. So I had that transition period of having to explain to clients who had had them done with me previously that, you know, that's it, we're no longer offering them. 
And that was difficult because I did have some customers who healed well um, or some customers who were like, well, I, I had it for years and years and I don't understand why I can't have it done again. That's always a difficult transition period to make. But I am a big believer that if you're going to have uh, a rule, it should probably apply fairly and evenly to everybody um, or at least every client. And then moving into forest, I thought about doing them. I even ordered some. And uh, and then I just decided, you know what, I'm, it's it's not worth it. And when I say it's not worth it, I hate to be, you know, the person to bring it up, but I'm also talking about financial viability. And we don't often like to talk about things through that lens because I know there's a big part of what we do that's considered uh, a service to people that goes beyond finances and money. But it is still a business that has bills to pay. And when we're charging money for a service that we perform, it starts to have a diminishing value if we know that that piece is gonna have so much follow-up care, mm -hmm. so much follow-up work, that it's it's gonna get to a point where if you were to add up all of the time that you spend with that one client, you start to lose money on the piece, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like if you do a dermal anchor, no matter how much you charge for it, and you're having to do five, 10 follow-up appointments where someone's having the same recurring issues it does tread a line at that mm. point where it's i haven't made any money off of this transaction because of the time that i've now given up to do this much follow-up care and a lot of people don't like to think in those terms because it can it, it can sound cold but i mean in the uk in 2023 we kind of have to start making those decisions about how many favors can i be doing when you know my bills aren't doing me any favors and I have to delegate my time wisely well, and sensibly, you know? There's a couple of things that I want to leave to a little bit later in the conversation, like the, the frequent problems that would come up and require those constant checkups, or not yeah. constant, but like repeated checkups. But I also do want to talk eventually about removing them and, and how that turns into its own thing also, because one of the reasons why we started to kind of dial back on them is because it got to the point where we had more people coming in to have them taken out than to put in. Mm -hmm. And once we reach that tipping point, we'd be like, why are we even offering this? If, you know, if the majority of the people that we interact that have them are just in to get them taken out, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, once the, once the service existed, once the jewelry existed, once customers started to see them online, uh, that would be this like tidal wave. And then you'd have maybe this one or two or multi-year kind of phase where it was like, where can I get these to heal with an acceptable level of viability? Everybody sets their own acceptable level of viability. There were plenty of times where I got kind of convinced or talked into putting them in a place where I would never, ever even consider it today. I did try to put several in, in tattoos that were on like completely wacky spots in the body that, that shouldn't have a body piercing, single point, multi-point, whatever. Um, but then, you know, fashionably, uh, I think at the time around that like mid, you know, 2005 to 2010, a lot of people were wearing much lower cut pants than they mm. are now. So it wasn't really a problem to put yeah. them on hips and remember put them the on hip, lower the, backs. That point, what, what happened to, to that? Like remember hip, hip piercings and yeah. dermal angers on the hips were just such a thing. Yeah. And now it's almost like they've, they've gone away or gone by the wayside. And right. I just remember for such a long time, it was it was a huge thing. There wouldn't be a week that would go by at work mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have somebody that wanted either surface piercings or dermal anchors on their hips. Um, yeah, well now it's, you know, a rising tide sinks all ships because like that waistline just keeps going up. And, you know, so after a while it was like, 
sure some people can heal it, but just like you, I, I kind of made it like, well, why would I do, you know, hip surface anchors on some people, but not other people? If people would come in and they were wearing high-waisted pants, or if we would talk about a lifestyle factor or just like body shape factors or whatever that would reduce the viability, it's like, well, even the people that might seem like they have a higher viability, plenty of those people, they're just not going to heal because th there's not enough jewelry under the surface for them to withstand bumps and knocks and irritation. If someone can heal them well and take good care of them, yeah, sure, maybe they can heal them for a while, but it's still, even after they're healed, only takes one snag, only takes one accident, only takes one little mistake yeah. for them to start to, you to fail. You can't be careful forever. No. Um, I, I would say that the, the, biggest, the biggest thing for me... Uh, especially when I was doing them in lots of different body locations, was the the struggle of figuring out what's the appropriate stem length, what's the appropriate stem rise. You know, you, sometimes you'd have to have this wide variety of jewelry available, mm -hmm. and then at that that point, it starts to get like uh, starts to be a financial problem. Where it's like, how much money am I going to have to sink into inventory? Right. And I'm still kind of rolling the dice. It's very easy to select the wrong stem length, the wrong base type depending on what part of the body it's going on. So there are so many different factors that were making them really annoying. Well, that was the exact problem that I had um, when I started offering genital piercing again after I opened Forest was inventory. Mm -hmm. You can't just have a one size fits all, so you have to have a range. And then for every piercing you do, I'm gonna want one size up and one size down just in case. And you know, I want to offer a full range of services. So it took me um, at least two years I think at least two years to to build up the inventory to be able to offer the services that I do now. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the exact same problem that I had. But I would much rather be putting that effort towards genital piercing than dermal anchor piercing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when I think about all of the money and the effort that I took into building up a robust inventory for genital work, it's at least for something viable that I feel is important for me to be offering. With dermal anchors, I don't have that same emotional desire to mm -hmm. like, I gotta provide these dermal anchors, yeah. you know, like I, I don't have it, I'm I sorry. I gotta put a star end <laughs> piece on this person's star tattoo on their forehead. I just don't have it. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's yeah. not there. Well, uh, it got to the point where I had like an, an absurd array of bases to the point where, again, it wasn't financially viable. Like if I added up all the money I made on surface anchors in right. a year and then compared it to all the money I invested on surface anchor jewelry options in a year, it was a, it was a negative financial venture. Well, these are the things nobody really talks about. You know, we talk about technique and we talk about, you know, offering certain services and trying to make as much available as we can. But do you ever stop and look and think i'm losing money on this it's costing me money to do this is it that important and relevant for my business and there are things that i've stopped offering because it was it wasn't something i wanted to do but there were also things that i've stopped offering because it was just a sinkhole financially and like i say at this point in time all of our bills are going up all of our expenses are going up and at a point, it's almost silly to not be able to make those decisions almost in an emotionless way and mm -hmm. just say, I have to do what's going to insulate my business from financial harm in any way that I can. And that yeah. means cutting out stuff that's actively losing me money. You know, financial issues aside, it, it, it was just too frustrating having people coming back and, and realizing like, well, you know, 
Maybe if I did, maybe if I had used a slightly longer or shorter shaft. I remember when uh, Industrial Strength first released their first generation of surface anchor bases. They also released these healing caps, and that was totally because of transdermal implants. A lot of a lot of times when bod mod artists do a transdermal implant, they're doing it on a scalp or somewhere, and it's it's deep tissue, so they would have a good amount of swelling. You know, separating tissue and all these things at that scale, you'd have more swelling. So a lot of times, a transdermal implant not piercing, implant base, would have a healing cap that would be a couple of millimeters long. They would keep that screwed onto the base. They would let it swell. And then once the swelling would come down, they would remove the healing cap and they would put on whatever other caps they'd want. People would have different you know, attachments and adornments similar to piercings. So I remember when Industrial Strength first released their surface anchor bases, they would also release these healing caps that were like two or three or four millimeter long, basically just like straight barbell yeah. things with a thread on one that. side. And I, I tried piercing one person with them, and it was just like not at all what we needed for surface anchors because they were such a small scale and they were so superficial and all that stuff. But I still have a bag of them at the shop as like a kind of a collector's item. Um, but figuring out the right depth, figuring out the techniques to put them in was such a struggle, like a multi-year long struggle, which is why I decided to make the video now because like I feel like I have just the right technique with just the right limitations on, on placement where I can get them to heal in extremely specific locations, meaning pretty much just that whole like teardrop high cheek just outside of the the orbit kind of area. Um, that's really the only place that I do them now. And like I can get them to heal well because everything is like the technique, the jewelry, the aftercare is just for viability with that one placement basically. But when I was trying to figure out how to like do the piercing, there was a long period of time where I was doing them with US style blade needles, which had a much longer cutting surface than something like a cannula needle. So I was overcutting, I was getting uh, improper tissue depth, I was having tissue that was you know deeper on the toe side versus the heel side. The heel is so small that if it's in a loose pocket or if it's not placed in just the perfect tissue depth, that heel is going to start to kind of rise up because there's not going to be enough jewelry there to, to hold it under the surface if you had swelling or if you had bad tissue depth or if you had an accident or something. So, so many frustrations went into that. So many innovations and trying to tweak and tweak and tweak and, and try to like perfect this thing that was imperfect. You know, it's, it, it was a lot of work to get mediocre results. Hmm. Well, I remember uh, at first the only depth available uh, sourced within the UK was 2.5 mil and then there was two 2.5 mil and three and you would use the three for maybe the back of someone's neck and the two for someone's temple for example and kind of gauge that tissue thickness um, and what base was required but what we would most often see um, that was a problem with uh, installation where people would come in and need to have something removed is where someone would have just taken a kind of one-size-fits-all approach and uh, installed the anchor and just kind of wedged the heel in mm -hmm. and the heel wasn't making it underneath the skin it was yeah. just almost wedged in that top layer of skin so it would look like it was in place kind of but if you looked slightly underneath the disc you would see uh almost like a, like a you would see almost like a, the way that the skin was kind of pinned in a certain way it wasn't actually making a seal mm -hmm. uh with the shaft itself you yeah. could still almost see a bit of the base 
um, because the the heel would be pinning mm-hmm. the skin in a certain way. So it would get people out the door, but then you know days weeks later you would get the rise on the heel yeah. where it would be coming back out again. That would be probably the most common problem we would see, and um, that would most often I found uh, be because someone was using a dermal anchor that was just too shallow for mm-hmm. an area that was quite thick. Yeah. Um, that was probably the most common problem. Um, we did also see the problem of dermal anchors that were too shallow being placed very deep into areas and then sinking and partially embedding. But that was a much rarer problem. The most common problem we found was incorrect installation and the heel just being kind of wedged in the skin. Yeah. Um, for the people who don't already have experience with them or the people that are piercing enthusiasts versus piercers, I want to try to see if I can paint a picture. So let's like scale it up mentally where let's imagine that the the hole um, between the outside of the body and where the surface anchor sits let's imagine that that's as large as a, a, a coke can okay like a can of soda okay now what lola is basically saying is that uh soda can would be uh that space that hole would be filled with the shaft the the post of the base so that would be the part that goes from the base up to the top and then there's a, an end piece threaded onto it now, the thing about it is if you compare the thickness of the skin, that might be taller than that can of soda or shorter than that can of soda. So if you were putting in a base and you didn't have the right length, the heel would basically be pushing in to the side of that can of soda from the inside, like into the wall of the piercing. It wouldn't be down to the point where it was in between the skin layers, which is where that base needs to sit. It needs to be sit, sitting just below the, the base of skin. Is that whole analogy stupid? No, no, I was just going to say, um, have you ever been just like running out with your bins or something? You're like, oh, she I need means to, a trash can when to, she says I bin. To, I need to run out with my bin, my, my garbage. I need to run out with my trash can. And you don't want to put your shoes on all the way, so you just put the front bit of your shoe in your shoe, and you just kind of sit on the back, right. and they're on, but they're kind of not all the That's way on. That's a much better analogy. But it'll, but it'll do, and it's not very comfortable, but yeah. you're only going to the bin. The jewelry <laughs> is technically in there. Yeah. But you can always spot it That's from a picture, because the end piece doesn't look like it's completely flat around the entire circumference of the disc. It yeah. looks flat-ish, but yeah. one side always looks like it has like some sort of a tension, or some sort of a lean or a tilt to it and you don't get that pop no yeah well i mean i don't, you don't always get a yeah pop, you don't always get the pop but i know what you mean by that whether it's a set like an audible pop or it's like a tactile pop like you, you can, can feel yeah. when the jewelry is in the correct tissue layer um and then there would be situations where you would do the install and you wouldn't get that feeling but it would be in and you would just kind of feel a bit be like, like, eh, fuck it. Yeah. like <laughs> be like you know what all you got to do is just wear this band-aid for a week and it'll be perfect and nothing will ever go wrong yes yeah, so i think that the viability of dermal anchors on individual people and individual anatomy was really non-existent in the beginning like we weren't looking at them the same as you would look at any other piercing on a person where you look at for viability Originally, it was just, okay, we'll keep them away from high movement areas, but other than that, we'll do them on anyone that asks, basically. Um, And so we had a lot of people. I've never installed a dermal anchor on a finger 
or anything like heavy. that. But I, but I, I did a few hands. I did one on a finger at a tattoo convention once. I did a couple of hands what kind of um, at the base of the thumb. And you know what? It lasted for fucking years, years and years and years. And that was one of the customers who was really angry at me when I said I wasn't doing them anymore. Because they were like, well, look at these. And I was like, I know you're a terrible example. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. I don't I don't know how this happened. Just, you know. I think lots of piercers have had those conversations where somebody comes in and they're like, oh, I want a service thing. And they'll be like, oh, we don't do them. They just won't heal. And they'll be like, you did this one on me 10 years ago. And they'll be like, uh, well, mm-hmm. good. Um, and we were kind of talking about this with other piercings recently about how uh, it's a whole different conversation, I know, but the expectation of healing probability um, has completely changed and shifted over the years to the point where there's almost this uh expectation that your piercing is guaranteed to heal because you paid for it right whereas that wasn't as as loud a thought as it was when i was starting out Mm -hmm. so just like you were saying it was an experimental thing when dermal anchors came out when i had mine done i was aware of that and even the person doing them was like look we don't really know what's going to happen with these you know and there was that kind of element of maybe they'll last maybe they won't we just don't know and it did get to that point maybe four or five years in where it was i want basically a permanent stick on diamante that there is i will refuse to accept could come out on its own and if it does come out i'm going to come back and shout at you mm-hmm. it just evolved into that and it got to a point where people were like well but if i take care of it it won't come out right and you were like i mean it still might come out it's yeah. less likely to but it still might because they're so tiny what i what i used to do is like customers would only be able to visualize what they saw. So like they would think that like it was just it was a, a stick on gem. What's the difference? Right. So like I, I I found that it was much more effective for me to be able to have those conversations about viability if I showed them what the base looked like first. Yeah, it's so, so small. I would say like, well let me let me show you what's actually under the skin. You see how small it is? And then like what I would I had a little thing where I would show them a base with no top and I would show them a base with the top. And the base, you know, was just so itty bitty. And especially if you'd show it to him with the top on, be like, now look at like what's really holding it in there. And imagine all you do is you snag it on a towel one day. Like the heel side is so short. It's maybe like a, a mil and a half, two mil long or something like that. It's so tiny that, um, you know, that the size of like a, the width of a 14 gauge or a 12 gauge needle. That's all that's holding it in there is this one tiny little heel on it. Um, the, the toe side, when you'd have a, a hole in it or whatever, you know, maybe they would, that side would heal fine. But then the problem is that the heel side would start to kind of like raise and lift. And once it got to the point where it started tilting, that was it. Like I, I would always tell people, if you ever look at it and, all, and, and it looks tilted, like one side is sticking up, that is it rejecting. That is it migrating. It needs to come out then because there's really no way to save it at that point. And so did you do a strategic placing like we did a strategic placing where you would look at the body part and you would think about which direction is this most likely to have an accident and that's where you would put the the long the long portion Mm -hmm. you know like you'd kind of think about stuff like that like if you were doing a sternum it would always be toe side up yeah yeah so and like not heel side up because also because of gravity you Mm -hmm. would expect if yeah. it fell forward, that kind of thing. But um, it was there was all st- it was all still just such a bad idea. Yeah, but like we did think about stuff like that, and I yeah. I like to think about all of that stuff. But I think I just kind of felt kind of um, overwhelmed by the tide of misinformation that grew around dermal anchors. That contributed to why I just stopped offering them because I felt I was having to do so much work 
to get people to unlearn things. Mm -hmm. That's always very difficult. It's difficult when you're dealing with aftercare. It's difficult when you're dealing with anything. It's when you're starting out with a customer who already has so much bad information, you have to peel all of that back. Um, so with dermal anchors, for me, it was like, people would be like, oh, well, they'll stay in forever if they're done right. And um, you know, if, if I'm really careful with it, it'll last forever and, and all of this kind of stuff. And just getting people to fundamentally understand, like this, this is probably going to be a temporary piercing for you. Eventually, it'll come out. So we're just going to do everything we can to make sure that it gets the best possible start, and that you enjoy it while you have it, and that it looks nice. And that's the extent of what we can do. And that became a point that it was unreachable to get to with most clients. Unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. how bad it got. Uh, it's difficult to phrase this. So if I don't do a good job, please tell me so I can edit it out. <laughs> okay. There was also... You never edit stuff out. These are all completely un absolutely. uninterrupted. Absolutely. One take will let. Um, <laughs> but the <laughs> there was, uh, there's, there's definitely a, a, a category of... I got an itch. Okay, then go ahead and itch. Oh, sorry. I just didn't want to interrupt the microphone thing. Okay. okay. Definitely leaving that in. Definitely not editing that part out. <laughs> anyway... Um, there's definitely a category of clients that are drawn to surface piercings, especially mm. in like the very eccentric areas. Uh, and it's like a lot of those clients are coincidentally the clients that are a little bit more challenging to have conversations about viability with. Yeah. Some of the clients would come in and they'd be like, I don't care. I want it. And be like, well, yeah, but, and they'd be like, I don't care. I want it. And part of me is like, well, they're informed. But I, you know, if they don't understand what you're what you're telling them, like, are or they really listen. informed? Yeah, because yeah. they're still gonna come back and be like, "Why did it scar?" Or even worse, they'll be like, "Oh, it tore out last night. Redo it," and be like, "No, no, 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 no. I can't do that." Yeah, that that I think for me is is probably the most maddening when you really do your due diligence. You talk to people. You you send them information if you're communicating by email, or you give them paper handouts, or you do whatever you do to go. These are the risks. Do you understand? Is that okay? Like, are you happy with this? Yep, absolutely. And then a few months later, you're having the same conversation of why did this happen? And it just it get, does get to a point where it makes you want to pull out your hair. So mm -hmm. I think I was just dealing with that so much that I got to the same point as you where I was like, I'm just going to stop putting these in because if I'm not prepared to deal with it, then in my mind that means that my clients aren't getting the best service from me, which is ultimately what I want. So I don't want to take the money from it if I'm not committed to putting in the time and work that it needs and I did get to that point with dermal anchors um, and I have clients still today who are you know who like things that are a little bit out there and are a little bit weird and hard to heal and they're very few and far between but I love when a client is like I know that this probably won't work and it might only be temporary but I'd love to have it even if it's just for a while I'm like I'd love to do this for you like mm -hmm. let's do it because you, you get that energy from them but when someone's kind of like really amped up and they're like, I don't care, let's just do it anyway. There's a, there's a different vibe where you can just sense that, oh boy, we're going to do this and they're just going to forget everything that mm -hmm. I said and then they're going to come back and strategically forget everything I told them. Um, and yeah, it's it's not it's not been something that I've missed doing. I do actually do removal. Like I offer removal um, as a service so that people who have had dermal anchors done anywhere uh, can have them taken out safely. So I, I do offer that as a service, but um, I haven't done any installation for years. Well, I want to talk a little bit about methods for installation, and then we can kind of start to 
I think the best way to wrap it up will be kind of talking about why and how we phased them out. But um, my methods for installation, as I said, you know, it started off with, uh, I mean, to be, to be completely honest, dermal punches, biopsy punches, you know, the thing with the green handle, which was a medical device. Like I, I was using those for all kinds of stuff, big cartilage piercings, surface piercings, surface anchors, whatever. I'm not going to lie about it. Um, they're not expressly banned in New Hampshire, uh, but I, I, I haven't used those in, I, I don't even know how many years. I haven't used them in at least eight years, maybe more. I, I use chamfer needles now. Um, if you're not familiar with what a chamfer needle is, sometimes people would refer to it as an O-needle. It's a cylindrical blade rather than like a, a three-bevel blade. Uh, I have a whole video of it, again, on my, my Patreon page, patreon.com slash RyanPBA. have a whole class talking about the difference between cannula needles, blade needles, chamfer needles. But chamfer needles, think of it like um, it's basically like a dermal punch but without that plastic handle. They're designed as body piercing needles. They're legal to use as body piercing needles, and they're very small, 16 gauge, 14 gauge. But that's what I'm using to install surface anchors today. Uh, basically, like in the in the video that I just published, uh, it's basically just the, the chamfer needle uh, and then a tool to hold the jewelry while I install it. That's all I'm using. But I remember I used to have completely ridiculously overblown, overcomplicated methods to install them. Mm -hmm be like a dermal punch and then i would go in with a, a taper and right. i would open Pocketing. i would separate a pocket yeah, yeah because again microdermal i was thinking about it in terms of like well how do you put in a transdermal implant you you cut open an incision point you separate the tissue you put it you know you do all these things so so taper i had uh, different methods for different body parts and i would only do that if i was so for something where the skin is highly mobile like the temple it moves around a lot that wouldn't need to do anything like that but for like the back of the neck i would do the same thing with it mm -hmm. with a taper i would punch and then um work a little taper around in there to try and get some separation because the skin would be so thick and hard yeah. to pinch and hard to stretch mm -hmm. that i would need a little bit of help with the pocketing i, I did yeah. that as well <laughs> well so i i complicated it even more the taper to open the pocket and then at the time uh there were no specialty tools specifically for surface anchors though those took years to to catch up to the, the the jewelry bases so i had to make my own surface anchor tool i would take like a hemostat with no teeth on it and i would take a dremel and i would basically cut out a notch that could lock onto a disc i would install it with that but then i also had this itty bitty little micro surgical skin hook so i would i would hold the jewelry in the the tool I would already have a, a dermal punched and separated, you know, taper pocket, all, all that stuff. And then I would take the jewelry in the, in the, the homemade tool. I would push in the, the toe and then I would take the hook, put it in the other side and pull it out and stretch it up, up and around the heel. It was such an obnoxiously complicated process. And I, I, I thought I was being so like BME doctor cool and all that stuff. And now it's basically just like pinch the skin up with my fingers, pierce with the chamfer needle pop the jewelry in done takes just a couple of seconds and in yeah. the video like i look at it now and it's like it, it it looks so simple and if i had show that to like 10 or 15 years ago ryan would have been like well that's that's far too like uncomplicated um so over here in the uk obviously biopsy punches are used all the time in piercing they're not a, a banned um tool to use um, so you would usually get a biopsy punch in a 1.6 or 2 mil, 14 gauge or 12, um, 
and again depending on the body part and how stretchy the skin was for somewhere the skin was very thin you'd be more likely to just use the 14 gauge and for maybe somewhere where it was a bit thicker or maybe it was a, a taller anchor you were having to install maybe it would be a 12 just to make things a bit easier for yourself um, and similarly no specialty tools and the specialty tools that came on the market were abysmal yeah they would send a, an anchor flying across the room as soon mm -hmm. as you tried to attach it uh or you would get ones that would just crack a gem because they were so tight so you would have to really try trial and error um tons of different tools to try and every shop would have that perfect one that was the tension would be just right that would give you the tension you needed to hold uh the top where if it did have a gem it wouldn't uh, crack but it was strong enough that it wouldn't ping across the room as soon as there was pressure put on it which would happen sometimes and you'd have to get another piece of jewelry and um so it was just a bit of a circus looking back a lot of trial and error did you ever have right at the beginning mm -hmm. there was this tool where it was basically like um a, like a a little knurled uh metal rod with a thread on the end and you were supposed to screw that onto the base and then use that for the leverage oh, and, yeah. and then you would take a tool another yep. tool and you would lock that onto the stem of the base then you would screw off that tool handle yeah. then you would try to screw on the top and that was all like while you were doing the piercing like I how obnoxious a, was that i did a bunch of installation without the tops being on Oof. where you would have a taper like a threaded taper threaded into the the post way easier to insert because the leverage to be honest but then you, have the, you yeah. have the difficult situation of having to try and unscrew a threaded taper from a dermal anchor base that could just disappear under the skin right so you're pinching and if you had a tool like you'd have to pull up on the base to the point where you could probably right. dislodge it and then shift where that heel and toe yeah. were such a faff that's why yeah. we, we a lot of people started just using 12 gauge biopsy punches mm -hmm. they were like if it's this difficult to try and get this in if it's this much of a hassle we can make it less than half a millimeter bigger of a hole and it'll just it'll go in, right in. and it's not going to make a significant difference to healing um and then uh, so before biopsy punches though it was all with cannula so you would be piercing in with a cannula and then you would draw it back but not remove it mm -hmm. and then pierce down in the other direction mm -hmm. um, to create that shape that you needed to make like a t-shape so that would again usually be with a 12 gauge needle um and uh, cannula though so like the length of the cannula. cutting surface was probably only right. about a third compared so, to like a u.s blade needle so i was very proficient with the cannula fairly proficient with the biopsy punch as well because it's you know although i will say when people started using the biopsy punches they were just putting that in all the way. This is like a seven or eight millimeter biopsy punch. People were putting it in until it made contact with the handle. It took people a long time to realize that wasn't necessary. And that you were only supposed to do it to the depth of the jewelry itself. That took a while. So uh, cannula needle, fine, biopsy punch, fine. Blade needles, that's where things started to get messy for me because that was the last thing I learned how to do. And I remember um, doing a dermal anchor on a temple. So usually on a temple, I would do um, a needle or a cannula, not a biopsy punch because I didn't feel that punch was necessary for the depth because it was so shallow. So I remember trying to do one with uh, a blade needle putting into the temple really not not very far and um blood coming out of the the handle up at the top like a little fountain <laughs> and it happened in a, like a second because yeah. i've i've put it in and then i've gone to draw back to make my my other pocket and it's just come straight out so i just put my finger on the top of the blade you know, like, just like went, in a hole yeah i just went because it happened so suddenly i was just like boop <laughs> and i was like um 
right, this is going to go really fast. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to have to pull this out and just stuff a base in there. And I did. And it, it was fine and it healed fine. It, it stayed put for a good long while. The person did have a shiner. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Well, surface anchors will really help you dial in your <laughs> piercer first aid. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also, like... um. It, it's a really good thing to, to build your voice of like, it's totally normal to have a massive bruise on your face yeah. and it's totally normal to basically have a swollen hematoma on your forehead. It's all natural. When I had a dermal anchor done in between my, my eyebrows, um, so, so a similar thing happened. Obviously, someone else was doing it for me. And when they removed... I think it was a biopsy punch. When they removed the biopsy punch, it bled so heavily that both of my eyes filled with blood. Like the blood ran out and then it pooled in both of my eyes. Metal. And I, I remember the sensation of it being really warm. And then I opened my eyes. I don't know why, just in the you know, the moment or whatever. And then my actual eyeballs filled with my own blood and then everything looked really red. Everything was just really red and warm. And I could tell that it was a lot because, you know, you can tell by the tone of someone's yeah. voice that they're like, okay, so <laughs> everyone just suddenly gets really calm and just, you yeah. know, like a kid's nothing teacher. Nothing wrong at all. Nothing to worry about here. Just your eyes are full of blood. And, <laughs> but yeah, it was fine after, you know, after we, we finished and everything was fine. So, um, yeah, those those kind of moments can be stealing. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, there there's still going to be piercers out there in the world who are still having these issues because... Everything everything goes in cycles. So as piercers like you, as myself, piercers who already have had experience and that experience has driven them away from the service have been like, oh, this is not worth it anymore. Yeah. And we stop doing it. There's going to be another generation of piercer that's coming in or is just starting to experiment with new stuff. They don't have an educational resource, so they have to kind of figure it out in the same way that you and I had to figure it out. Yeah. And they're probably dealing with some of those issues, different parts of the yeah. world, different parts of the countries that you and I even let work them. in. <laughs> you know, let, let them. But, you know, just just realize that uh, the reason why a lot of piercers don't do surface anchors is because they're not they're not great to, you know. Listen, it's it's, you know, not a not always a popular opinion but there are certain situations where it's it's not the work it's the people and it's not something that we talk about again very much because we're obviously massively grateful to the people that come to us for work but it's the human interaction that grinds you down to the point where you're like it's not the work we love figuring stuff out even when stuff doesn't go right like problem solving and trying to make things work it's one of the best parts of the job and all of those memories of figuring out dermal anchors and what makes them tick like that was all really really great um and even figuring out what gives them the best longevity and working with people all of that was excellent but there's something at the back end where like i say there's so much misinformation and it gets to a point where it feels like there's this mountain you have to climb with people just to get them to listen to you mm -hmm. and believe what you're saying as genuine professional advice that's the thing that grinds people down. Like whenever you ask someone why they've stopped doing something, yeah, part of it can be financial, but the biggest part of it is, oh, I just, I don't want to have that conversation anymore. I don't want to have that conversation of, yeah, this is periodically going to get inflamed whenever, mm -hmm. you know, whenever your skin acts up a little bit, for example, you know? Well, let's, let's talk about that because that's, that's something 
that again, it just took it took lots of piercers a long time to figure out what was going on because yeah. I, I think when you have something like a surface anchor, you had this kind of silent com- competition in a way yeah. where piercers would talk about all the things that they were really good at, but they wouldn't really talk as much about the, the frequent and recurring issues that they would have because yeah. sometimes they'd be self-conscious to be like, well, I'm, I'm clearly not doing it as well as this other piercer, so I don't want to tell them about you know, this cycle of like every couple of months, these piercings act up and get problematic or whatever. But the thing to, to, to understand is that um, with it being a single point piercing, it doesn't have the same kind of drainage that a body piercing would have. So if you think of a, a surface bar piercing or other traditional piercings that have an entrance and an exit, they can drain in a different way. So it, for anybody who's had long-term piercings where you know that maybe every now and then they might act up a little bit, they might get a little bit crusty. You might need to take your jewelry out to clean it, but then it's going to go back to being happy and healthy because they'll be able to drain well. But a single point piercing, you basically just have like a, a pocket that fills with gunk. It can fill with dead skin cells. It can fill with bacteria. It can fill with whatever. Moisturizer you know. and makeup. Moisturizer. Well, D- even if different you're being things careful, that might get in there. Right. It's sweat is going to carry all of that product all across your skin. Yeah. And. It, as well, a lot of people aren't being careful mm-hmm. and um, are, are coming in for wellness checks and appointments and things with dermal anchors smothered in makeup. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I, I would notice that that would be a big problem with nostrils today. Yeah. Same kind of issue with surface Absolutely. anchors. Even if they weren't on the face, like people would come in and they would be putting concealer foundation to, to hide the redness, to hide the problems. Right. And that would just be amplifying it, making it worse and making it worse. So, But even without the outside factors like makeup or chemicals or soap or facial wash getting in something whatever um, just the natural stuff that your body is going to secrete all the different things that your body sheds over you know days weeks months uh, it doesn't discharge from that pocket very easily so fluid can get trapped in there Uh, bacteria can start to kind of feed on that fluid you can have these cycles where they would get swollen uh, they would get red and angry, and then maybe they would discharge. Maybe you'd get some whitish, yellowish, brownish gunk that was coming out of them, and then maybe, if you were lucky, they'd start to get better, and then you'd have this, uh, you know, this period where everything was happy and healthy. But I didn't really know what was going on with those problems for a while. I hadn't really dialed in my problem solving, my troubleshooting, uh, for for a long time in my career, and. Stuff like that, it was this constant like, well, I don't know, try to put a chemical on it. Well, I don't know, try to do this. Well, I don't know, have you tried squeezing it to get that gunk out of there? (laughs) I don't know, maybe sleep with a Band-Aid on it. All these different things that weren't really helping because we didn't understand what was going on with this cycle of like better and worse and better and worse. And after a while, that cycle of better and worse can also start to build up scar tissue it can restrict blood flow sometimes if the piercing gets very fluid filled and and like nebulous then that can start to let the the heel start to lift up which can lead towards migration lead towards reject all these issues and like even the best done surface anchor with the best jewelry that was you know from maybe even taken care of really well can still have those cycles so that was another big annoyance yeah i don't i don't see myself offering dermal anchors again i would say at this point i'd like to say never say never because you know you just you never know but um like i say i just don't feel the same sense of loss that i've felt you know there are other piercings that i don't do anymore that i i sometimes think like i would love to do that for somebody but um dermal anchors just aren't there for me and i don't know if it's just because i have too many bad bad memories and bad associations of doing the work the biggest demographic that i had of people that wanted dermal anchors 
were hairdressers that wanted them on their hands. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't say I didn't do them on the fingers or anything like that. But that conversation, I just had so many times the piercings being done on the face and then the makeup being an issue. Mm -hmm. I had that conversation so many times. And it's like I say, that's the thing that grinds you down. It's, I don't mind troubleshooting. It's part of my job. It's, it's, it's a legitimate part of my job with every piercing that I do that's incorporated into the service is my time and my follow-up care. Mm -hmm. But I think you can get ground down with one particular thing. And when you're not really feeling any love for that thing or, you know, getting any kind of positive energy back from it, I I don't think there's anything wrong with um, restricting services that don't, you know, spark joy or whatever it is you want to say. A lot of the clients too, that were getting them done were getting them done for for fashion reasons they weren't really like there definitely was a category of people that were getting surface anchors because it was like extreme and cool and new and different but there was also i would say a much larger category that was getting it because it was like a stick on gem a stick on gem that they would see in like a music video or in a magazine or something and i you know i'll i'll do lots of piercings on people who have never been pierced before lots of things that are like challenging difficult lots of genital stuff and like lots of like heavier cool interesting things that are rare on people who have never been pierced before but Sometimes the the problem with something that's so prone to being problematic, like a surface anchor, um, it's not like a surface piercing. Sometimes people that want a surface piercing, they're at least going to have one or two other piercings. They maybe have a little bit more experience with taking care of something that's challenging to heal or, or doing some home troubleshooting. A lot of surface anchor clients, you know, people that were getting something on their hand or their face, uh, they might be falling back into in, inappropriate Uh, troubleshooting you know i'm just going to put some ointment on it or i'll stick a band-aid on it or i'll clean it with alcohol or something and that'll help and just made it a lot worse so all those problems um over time it's going to lead to like a very predictable uh, logistical problem for a shop is then one of your primary services becomes removing surface anchors Removing surface anchors was a whole technique in and of itself, and big shock, I used to really overcomplicate it. Um, I can say it now just because it's been so long, but I I used to use a scalpel to take them out. Like years, I'm talking like more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Use a scalpel because like, you know, oh, to take out a transdermal implant, you'd use a scalpel and it's this big ordeal. To take out a, a microdermal, obviously, whatever. Then kind of started to develop like, well, okay, I can do this with just a piercing needle. And I know that there's this also category of piercers who might hear us talking about removing them with a needle and be like, you idiot, you should just be able to massage it out with your fingers. That was a whole point of frustration because like, sure, yes, maybe you could just remove some by just massaging them out, working them out with your fingers. But a lot of bases had no hole in it. There was nothing to bind it in, no skin that would adhere to the base. So yeah, sure, you can can wiggle those out. You can do all that kinds of stuff. But the ones where like the skin was kind of grown through a hole or adhered to it, you'd need a little bit of an assist. For me, that would be a piercing needle. Never, ever going to be a scalpel these days. But it turned into this thing where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm putting in several a week. I'm maybe taking out one or two a week. Then it turned into, well, I'm putting in one or two a week and I'm taking out several a week. And once you kind of get underwater with that, once you kind of get flipped around, it's still like, wh- why, why am I still offering these? Right. Then it turns into like, okay, if we were the ones that put it in, we'll take it out for free. And then it turned into like no other shops anywhere in my area knew how to put them in or take them out. So we were getting this like funnel of people where it was like, oh yeah, go to Precision. They'll take them out. They'll take them out. They'll take them out. And we were getting people from all over New England driving in 
just to have surface anchors removed and yeah. then it was like oh well sh you know shit how do we how do we set what the service fee is how do we you know put aside time for for something like that like why are we accepting the liability in the first place right. all these different complication factors that came into it and a lot of those things are probably factors in why so many studios uh, choose to not offer them these days. Well, that's why I choose to just do removal, because if anyone's had one done for me in the past, I want them to have a safe opportunity to have it removed. And for just anyone that's had one done anywhere, like I feel like I can offer a safe removal service, um, but I don't have to contribute any more to putting them out there and like bring, bringing them to the world. Yeah. Every piercing that I do, most like, not every one of them is going to heal. Just statistically, not every piercing that you do is going to heal. But I like to think that every piercing I do has the capacity to heal and has the capacity or the potential to last a lifetime. Dermal anchors are the only piercings that you put out there that have a 100% failure rate in the fullness of time. So that for me is what kind of separates them from the other work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, and just not doing them anymore. I really haven't felt it's hurt my business in any way. No. Um, I, it's not that I'm inundated with people asking for them. And uh, and if they were, you know, as I say, I haven't done them for years. There are people that are probably much more skilled at installing them than me at this point. And they would be better served by attending those services, I would think. Yeah, but, you know, they're, I think a lot of the studios that are still doing them full force, be like, yep, totally, we'll put them anywhere. Those are the studios that aren't necessarily putting in the same kind of thought uh, into the long-term viability, the long-term health, all these different issues that would come into it. Yeah. That's their choice if they want to offer it. We, in my studio, basically it's just those facial placements. Just, yeah. That's pretty much it. If, if somebody wants to do... A piercing on the chest or a piercing whatever I will educate them about the viability of surface bar piercing surface to surface piercing um, and I will also tell them like I, I can't give you a hundred percent success rate on this I can give you a, a 50 50 I can give you an 80 20 or, or whatever they can make those informed decisions but surface anchors because like like you said on a long enough time period the viability is probably gonna be zero Right. Plenty of people have been able to heal them long term, but they're absolutely in the minority. And the people who have had them for more than five years, more than ten years, it's a minority of the minority. Like it's a very it's it's a it's a it's a very significant rarity that somebody would have a long term healed surface anchor these days. I'm I'm not sure if there was something that preceded uh, microdermals and surface, anchor, uh, surface anchors in kind of design and functionality but just looking at them for what they are as you say 2006 being that kind of introductory period for them that's what 17 years ago mm -hmm. it's such a small amount of time in piercing history compared to pretty much any other piercing I can yeah. think of um, probably the last big innovation that we saw in the industry I would think um, in terms of like dramatically new and different product design and i think some things long term maybe just aren't winners yeah um, i mean the experimentation is important i feel bad for dermal anchors i'm sorry dermal anchors <laughs> but i'm also not sorry yeah it's like uh we thank you for your service yes. but you are no longer required thank you for your surface your watch has ended mm -hmm. um so phasing them out you know like i think a lot of studios just pulled the plug entirely a lot of studios it was just like well we'll use up the stock we have and we won't reorder some some studios are just we'll do a certain placement but not all placements all those different things so if you are if you are winding it down 
I fully support you. If you are if you are ramping it up, I would just say really try to just think through all the different issues and think about those issues on a long-term scale and not just today, tomorrow, this year, whatever. Um, I, I do want to do a couple of like little shout outs about uh, jewelry innovations and mm. stuff because there were plenty of people that had some really interesting creativity. Um, when we use the terminology like transdermal, microdermal, there was also the macrodermal. Mm. Did you ever hear about those? Yeah. That was Joel, Joltron in, in Australia. Joltron uh, basically devised like a something in between a transdermal implant and a microdermal were base. Were they the ones the with the symmetrical base? I don't know if they were symmetrical or not, but they were just like basically like a, a monster version of okay. a microdermal. It was a similar design, but larger. It might have been like larger holes, but I okay. don't think it was symmetrical. Oh, okay. I don't remember. I could be wrong, Joel. I'm sorry. There were a lot of interesting innovations. Like I would say the vast majority of them were the, the longer toe and the shorter heel side. Um, Industrial Strength was was one of the main companies pushing out the the version where there were two small holes on the toe side, one smaller hole on the heel side. But then, I know Anatomental started making their slotted versions where their toe side had a slot down it, where it was basically like kind of two long toes, Mm -hmm. uh, and then no hole on the heel. And the thought process there was like, well, okay, you won't have skin adhesion into a hole. They'll be much easier to remove. You won't have to expand the hole, cut the hole open, things like that. Um, I did have a little uh, uh, chapter in that story where I uh, convinced the Natametal to make a, a, a unique design for me. I show it in the surface anchor video, but it's basically it's a symmetrical base with a slot on both sides. Industrial Strength had a symmetrical base that had a, just a single hole on both sides. The innovation is the funnest part. Like, yeah. There's so much creativity, and I, and I love that side of things where it's like, how can we make this work? Yeah. The innova- innovation is awesome. The implementation is, is where it starts to, right. you know, the, the innovation is the, the peak, mm-hmm. and the implementation is where it kind of starts to fall off a little bit with some ideas. But yeah, um, yeah I, re- I really enjoyed learning how to do dermal anchors and installing them for a long time. It just... It was a challenge. It was just a like a a rising tide of misinformation and problems that I just wasn't prepared to deal with anymore professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I, I saw the video, like I've seen the, the Patreon video that you put together and it was nice just to see like some solid and, and pretty impartial information. I mean, in the video itself, you're giving the best information about how to put them in if this is something that you're doing. Um, so I, I especially that with was, a long-term perspective too. Yeah, with a long-term perspective for viability. So I thought that that was um, really, really good, and will hopefully be very helpful because I think that there are less and less people offering them, which means less people have the opportunity to learn. But yeah. maybe that'll push them to innovate, you know, and then they can yeah. teach us something. Whether it's a, a success or a failure, like taking the chance is important as long as it's a responsible chance you know with a surface anchor there's not a lot that was going to go wrong other than maybe a small scar you know uh compared to some other things for experimentation like it's pretty pretty tame so i think that that experimentation was really important you know it helped us learn what didn't work to try to find the things that did work i think a lot of people were focused on surface bar piercing surface to surface surface bar piercing before that then their their attention kind of you know went into that direction of, of surface anchors, microdermals, and now that those have kind of came and went, people are focusing a lot more of their attention back onto you know 
traditional, whatever you want to call it, surface bar piercing, surface to surface piercing. You have people, innovators like Luis Garcia being able to like get out there and teach classes and give his long-term perspective of, hey, I've been doing these surface piercings for 20 or more years and here's what can make them work. Don't really kind of get tempted by that fad of surface anchors thinking that it's like, it's so easy, anyone can do it because long-term the viability will be the issue. Surface bar piercing, I'm really excited to see where, like, where those go. You know, there have been innovations with like the flat bottom surface bars and all those things. And I think some of those innovations, jewelry innovations and other things, technique innovations, might not have happened without surface anchors, without microdermals. So they definitely have their place in our history. But mm -hmm. I think the majority of it is going to be firmly planted in, in my past anyway. Yeah. So anything else you want to talk about with surface anchors? Not really. Okay. Well, you know, we, we got we got quite a lot of it. Um, if you, listener, dear listener, would like to get more information about uh, Surface Anchors, you can check out my video available at patreon.com slash ryanpba. It's about uh, 23 minutes long. I show two different examples, both on the face. One is a, a single, and then one is a pair of anchors next to each other. Uh, kind of works on that kind of curved plane of the face. But I talk a lot about different tips and tricks for installation. I show some different exercises that you can practice in your studios or even your homes on something inanimate. You can start to build up your fundamentals and your comfort zone before you might actually try it on a, a regular client or a coworker or, or a friend or, or you know a, a client. Um, I always appreciate your support, and uh, I guess thanks for listening. Is there anything you want to say as we wrap it up? Hi. <laughs> um, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to going to, to APP next month. Yeah, well, that's yeah. one of us. Um, for me, it's still just a mountain of work. Oh, that's true. Um, Ryan has to do so much work with, say, like, right now there's all this equipment. I don't know what it does. I'm just sitting here. Um, so Ryan has to be in charge of equipment management and you know, all that kind of stuff that I don't understand. So I probably just get the benefit of just getting to go along with it while you actually have to do the Do, do the all work. of the everything else? Yeah, I think, um, but I've said before, you know, you make it look very easy, but I get to see the stuff that you do behind the scenes and it's a lot of work. Right, like so, I'm here on, air quote, vacation right. with my going? girlfriend. Well, I, I put in, what, 12 hours of work on that video over two days? Yeah. My idea this morning was taking you for donuts because it's Star Wars Day and there are Star Wars themed donuts. And are we eating donuts right now? No, we're recording a podcast. <laughs> so um, maybe after this, I can take you for some donuts. Yeah. I've worked enough today. Yeah, I guess. But now I have to edit this episode and publish this episode. Uh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thank you for listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. If you're going to be at the APP conference in Las Vegas, please come to our live podcast. I believe it will be Tuesday night, but check the schedule. It'll be part of the alternative to the bar entertainment. We're doing a, a, a live podcast with special guests. We're going to be talking on some subjects that we don't discuss on the public podcast. Um, should we give them a little hint about what the subjects are? You should, because I can't remember. <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about um, setting retail price points. Oh, we're yeah. going to talk about, what was the other one? Oh, standards. Like, you know, different standards, whether it's uh, legislation or whether it's like personal protocols in your studio. And, you know, how much is too much? How much is enough? How much is not enough? All those different things. We're going to be talking about a lot of cool stuff. And it won't be for the public. It will just be for the, the people live in attendance. 
Uh, and if you come to the podcast live, you get one of our cool Team Piercing Wizard um, uh, stickers, which is like inspired by Team Rocket from Pokemon. It's myself and Lola kind of done up as Pokemon characters. And a Meowth. And a Meowth. Um, but you can only get that sticker if you come to our live podcast in Vegas. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks for listening. The video is available on Patreon, and I'll be back with another episode at some point. Bye. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.